This is Jesus, the Pattern Son podcast, and this episode is a brief history of what has been called the SAM-5 Body of Christ Move of God. Welcome. This is Jesus, the Pattern Son, attempt to give you sonship doctrine that is faithful and fulsome, or in other words, a go at it that's biblical and orderly. Okay, welcome back everybody. This is the second in a three-part series of history. And the aim here, rather than being fulsome history, is to try to give you a context for the doctrine and the context for the conversation, the doctrinal conversation, as we always want in any kind of exegesis, let alone uh, understanding or constructing theology. So this one will be the history of the same five body of Christ move of God. And we have already done a quick summary of the history of the latter rain movement. And we saw that the latter rain movement well, first there was Wesley who preached sinless perfection. Then there was holiness. Then there was Pentecostalism. Then there was the healing revivals. And it was in that milieu that the latter rain movement was founded. And so Sam 5 came along in the 60s. And Sam 5 had been a concrete contractor. He owned a business, Corey Concrete. He became a a Baptist minister, got filled with the Holy Ghost, <laughs> with the evidence, with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues, and as was common for Southern Baptists in that era, that meant he was disfellowshipped. And then he got some notoriety for casting demons out, notably from Jane Miller in New Orleans and also from a young man in Lubbock. And he was also in the context, at that time, the shepherding movement was coming out. Of course, the charismatic movement in general was a widespread and among those was the shepherding movement. And he was not really affiliated with, with them at all, but he he did take a few ideas from them in terms of what he did was I would call corporate shepherding. But he took a great deal from the latter rain movement. And when I found out about him, he was running with the likes of Bill Britton and George Houghton. So they all had sonship doctrine. They all preached Sonship, And one of Sam's uh, big scriptures would be 1 John 1 and 20, 1 and 12, I think. Just a minute. Yes, 1 and 12, John 1 and 12. But as many as received him to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Of course, not knowing Greek, Sam 5 did not know that the word there is a not huios. And so, but he read it as if you believe strongly enough 
then God is going to give you the power and you can work toward becoming a son of God like Jesus was. Which is not what the Greek says, but nevertheless. <laughs> that's And he talked about uh, Gideon's 300 and he talked about the mystery of the maid and the man-child. So Sam Fife took the latter rain movement in a major way and added the man-child, the man-child to the manifested sons. This was the kernel of what went on doctrinally. So let me explain the history of the man-child. So it is well known. You can find the newspaper articles from Miami online that Sam Fife got this revelation that he would bring the man-child in. And so he had sex with someone not his wife, and there was a child. And then he said he was deceived and repented and worked on bringing the many-membered man-child in. And you can find in the his little booklet that was published by the Miami Revival Center, the mystery of the maid and the man-child. You can find out that the ministry is the bridegroom and the the church congregation is the woman, and that in living rooms around the country, <laughs> revelation is going to come forth, and as the woman submits to the man, then a many-membered man-child, meaning a corporate son of God, who is the manifested sons of God severally. But this, this is going to be a corporate work. And so, although it wasn't specified in an orderly or clear fashion, uh, basically, if we, now this is my, my words, if we submit enough to the eldership, we, and, and eventually then there was also the wilderness word, we'll mention that in a minute, then we could become perfect. Well, there would be a lot of howls right now. But that is basically what we understood in 1972. So Sam Fife was becoming well-known because of the Jane tape. And he and others that he recruited would travel around. And I have had people who flatly deny that he recruited others, but it is true that he recruited others. I've met somebody who he attempted to recruit who refused. So there was a gentleman in a church in Austin as a guest speaker who mentioned the manifested sons of God. And so I immediately after service went and asked him if he had ever heard of Sam Fife. And he said, yes, Sam Fife had asked him to join the movement he was founding, but he had said no. He was a faith preacher. So this preacher now affiliates with the word of faith, and um, I guess he does mention manifested sons, but he preaches the word of faith. And he was shocked to discover when I, he said, well, whatever happened to Sam Fife? I said he, he flew his airplane into the side of a mountain, and he was shocked. He said he had an airplane. Okay. He did not have an airplane in the same sense that some of the big names of the word of faith had airplane. He sold his business. He sold his house. And yes, he had a Cessna. Okay. Anyway, so 
he was traveling around, as were Britain and, and I don't know exactly what Warnock was doing. Warnock was writing Fulsom books. And there were several others. And then Sam Five um, had some friends like um, Lopez and Buddy Cobb joined. Buddy Cobb was somewhat different from Sam Five and had different ideas. Different, he came out of a different class, different theology, and um, continued to have different but uh, theology and preaching and different some perhaps different order in his local bodies we'll see so when i say local bodies i mean the local congregations so that's a somewhat this is what a well-informed informant says but i haven't seen evidence of that so and betty cobb became the second in command so back to sam five started the man child message one of the first big conventions where that was preached was lubbock and Somebody had a vision, which was shared publicly, of uh, male sexual organs. All right, so right there you see a, a potential for problems. Anyway, that was a vision that uh, confirmed the word that was the revelatory word that was preached in Lubbock. And this was told to me by somebody who was there. Okay, so I wasn't there, and I this was before 1969 when I joined. Okay, and so then in about 1971, the 69-71 time frame, then Sam Fife had the wilderness word. This was preached uh, for the first time in the convention at the Farmer's Branch that met at the Farmer's Branch Elementary School. So we called it the Farmer's Branch Convention. And of course that itself was a confirmation of the word. But Sam said we would all go out into the wilderness, into communities in the wilderness, and it was thus that we would become perfected. And this was also preached again at the Montreal Convention. My best friend went to the Farmer's Branch Convention, and I heard both sets of tapes. So some people would argue today that this never happened. Uh, they were talking to the wrong person. Okay, so we were going to the wilderness to escape the Antichrist and to become the perfected, many-membered man-child son of God. All right, and subsequent to that, we did see many wilderness farms started both in South America and in Canada and subsequently to that. Well, there were residential collective settlements here in the United States, but sub to a smaller degree and is subsequently across the world. And they varied in they varied in a number of things. Everything varied. So the policy was that whoever preached, we all preached by, by revelation. There was no, at that time, no set order. And although the order might be, it was close to the woman, meaning only ordained people could preach. But there's a convention would not have a roster of who preaches when or on what topic. There was no 
announced topic. And even in a local body, there was no topic that I know of, and it was assumed that people would preach on the same topic and know when to get up, and it was assumed that if two people stood up in a convention, so we're talking about a ballroom where you have 2,000 people perhaps, and you have many people sitting on the platform, and if two people stood up at the same time, somebody missed it. And it's amazing the extent to which that actually worked. (laughs) And I certainly participated in that at the local level. And there were people who were not ordained and who were sitting on the floor of the auditorium who got up to preach. That did happen, but not often. And the order was, since I'm talking about that now, the order, it was expected that during the praise service, you understand there was a led worship singing and among the singing there would be opportunities for the entire group to sing in tongues and there might be a a quiet lull there in which a word of prophecy was going to be given but during the worship service it was expected that the prophets would see visions would write them down block format and sign them and then pass them in and then they would be read by whoever is presiding at the meeting at the end of the meeting and there it should those visions should confirm the word it wasn't until much later that i realized that some were pocketed but anyway um, this was the order both in local groups and in the conventions once again the conventions were held on the major holidays and so a typical local group would have two or three people who are set in as elders who may be very good preachers or maybe not. But about every quarter, there was a convention that one could go to. And uh, in the meantime, there would be traveling ministry, also of a variety of quality, who might come at the invitation of the local elders and preach. And so... Often this was arranged at the conventions. People, of course, did not have websites, so it was not possible to tell when people were stealing other groups' messages and then preaching them as if they were revelation. And nor was it possible to go find a personal phone number unless people wanted you to do that. So, you know, if you were uh, in authority, a local elder, then at the convention you could go around and find the the traveling ministry and, and invite them. And it, there was um, an assumption that a, an apostle could set in elders. And so, uh, but exactly who was an apostle was not always agreed upon. And who got to be elders um, was sometimes a little bit surprising. And uh, there's con- discussion about that to this day. So to recap, in the main, Sam Fife took the Sonship Doctrine from the latter reign and took the idea of shepherding and make it made a corporate, added the idea of the man-child, and allowed a great deal of diversity in his movement and created a community system in an effort to become perfect. Now, there were some things that were controversial, but 
settled back in 1971 that I think we need to really talk about because from my perspective today, this these are the roots of the errors. So first we mentioned how sonship come man-child come um, ministry becoming the bridegroom that's a problem because you are replacing Jesus also it could possibly be a problem in terms of an inappropriate focus on sex I'm glad to say this did not become a sex cult um, but unfortunately there were considerable there are today considerable accusations of sexual depredation, um, some of which probably not um, believable, and but too much smoke and no policy statement is a real problem. So, so we've got two problems. Replacing Jesus is a huge problem, and not having a, a policy against sexual abuse is a real problem. Another problem is uh, the potential for a tyrannical eldership if you've got corporate shepherding. So the shepherding movement has been repented of by the other leaders of that and is not practiced today. But we still see in the move two classes of people. They tend not to be as uh, petty and tyrannical today as before because so many of, of us have grown up and people who were just terrible elders just had people move away and some have died and some have learned better but you still have two levels of people and if you're going to be a good non-elder then you're going to be a good sheep you're going to be sheeple you're going to be immature and so you I think you have a real problem if the whole idea is that we all are growing up <laughs> and that the ministry is supposed to help everyone grow up into the head Christ, meaning everybody is mature and it's the body who does the ministry rather than the eldership. And so you've got a problem. Okay, and particularly if you've got death to self and you've got some preaching like was done in 06, 07, 08 of, of, Jesus, of God doing surgery on us without anesthesia, like what? Okay, so, and and you don't find the openness to the flow of the Spirit, and you don't even find conventions on the same theme. And th it has been told to me, I wasn't there, that there was a time when Buddy Cobb got up and in Bowen's Mill, which is now their kind of headquarter for conventions, that uh, really... Buddy Cobb got up and contradicted Sam in, in a public and obvious way, such in the same convention, such that Sam had to get on his knees and then say something to the body. But Sam was open to diversity. Buddy Cobb somewhat less so. I know there's people laughing at right now. Okay, there was error in terms of setting the day. So this was discussed I remember in 1971 when it was said that the the seven-year tribulation was going to start in 1976 and Sam said you can't know the day or the hour but you can certainly know the season and why not the year so 
Uh, we've seen that the seven-year tribulation did not start in 1976. And there was another date set in the 90s. And after that proved not to be the day of Jesus returning or or these people becoming manifested sons. Either one, more people left. And so it was told to me in 06 by one of the very leading men that we now know that we will not bring in the day, but rather the day will bring us in. So that has been a change. He, in that same conversation, said that we now know that we are at, we, meaning the ministry, are at best the best man, and Jesus is the bridegroom. And people will not be sharing those booklets of Brother Sam. But it was at 06. I read all of them. I can. Okay. Um, it was questioned back in 1971 why we were not going to do any evangelism. Brother Sam's policy is that we would not in any way advertise and I was shocked to discover that the move now has a website. Like we talked in the 70s about the the computers being a method for the Antichrist to spy on us. And yet people have uh, even Facebook accounts. Some people in the move and some people do not. Okay, so evangelism. Today if you ask the leadership in the move where the evangelists are, they were going to say, they're out evangelizing. So I have met somebody who comes to a move convention who said her, she and her husband were evangelists. But by and large, they don't try to evangelize. In fact, some of them have said from a convention pulpit recently, they don't even try to evangelize the second, third generation. And then another one of the top leaders stood up and said, well, I do. I evangelize children. And yeah, well, how efficiently, effectively, that's another question. But the, the idea of holiness and becoming perfected by body life, by the rubbings of body life, meaning the death to self that's caused by either living together or by submitting to the ministry, that necessitates that you cut people off from their families. And that was very much done in the 70s, not so much now. But we clearly were expected. So we, meaning we the teenagers who were the first generation who came into the move in the late 60s, the early 70s, we were expected to move into the move and to disaffiliate with our families. And of course that caused some consternation. And there was one young woman uh, uh, in our set whose parents hired uh, a deep programmer, the famous deep programmer, Ted Patrick, to do a coercive intervention with their daughter and deprogrammer from the move. And <clears throat> to this day, they're afraid of her talking to anybody who in the move or out of the move, which is crazy. And it's reported that she couldn't even make up her mind what kind of eggs she wanted in the morning thereafter. But also, I'm pretty sure that there was a conversation among the parents of the people I knew. And I'm pretty sure that my father, who was an attorney, said to them, 
Kidnapping your kids, if they're more than 18, is a felony. It's called kidnapping. <laughs> and this is probably not going to be a good idea. And boy, he was right, because he had taught me enough law to know that too. Anyway, so deprogramming was tried, and at least once successfully, but by and large, those of us who were first generation, we were there because we wanted to be there. Now, the second generation have a lot of very strong critique because there was, by all admission, very severe child-rearing practices were taught. Now, I myself never saw anything that I would call abuse, but I would say that I have seen severe child correction practices, okay, so slapping of hands and telling kids that they had to stay in a certain place in the, you know, sit on this bench while I go wash dishes. Okay, I don't think that's really optimal, but, and the children had to stay in service, but usually they could play and sleep. So I really think, I didn't see any abuse, but clearly there are some second generation that think there is abuse and there have been some accusations about child sexual uh, abuse. Now, the accusations that I know about are against average adults and not against the ministry. So we're not talking about uh, a child predator ring. We're talking about people who moved into community quickly with leadership who by and large had no idea what they were doing in terms of moving into a residential collective settlement. One of the groups is a commune, but the rest are not. Sam 5 clearly taught against communes as such. Okay, so if you quickly move a lot of families from different geographies, different congregations, and you have a lot of people and a lot of different ideas. It's not surprising and not much uh, vetting of people coming. It's not surprising that you're going to get some uh, mis uh, inappropriate behavior and certainly among the teenagers. And so my understanding from the leadership is that th when this came to the ministry's attention. It was dealt with appropriately and confidentially. So I know of one particular case where a teenage male on an in-time farm that no longer exists um, did molest another second generation person. And the ministry was told and they corrected him and watched him and, and today he says negative things about them. <laughs> Okay, so he, he accuses them. I don't know. I can't. I only have that one report. Okay. Um, I know of a couple of people, or at least one a pedophile who was in the move and who moved around and um, was caught by the authorities. And I don't know about the move elders being involved in that at all. I don't know. I just don't know. But I know that he at one time did live on in time farms. And I know that the police picked him up and uh, adjudicated him and put him in prison. And uh, that he has a family who was not living with him at the time. Probably 
that's those two things are connected okay but i also see continue to see on the website on online lots of accusation some of which i think are just lurid crazy stories some of which i think are uh, exaggerations of severe child care um, but what i am not seeing is a policy statement and this worries me a lot so i do have one report from somebody who's been in the move all, many many years and is not now that there have been cases where powerful people in the move were involved so i'm saying a powerful older man and a teenager and when that was corrected then the other powerful men said it was her fault i have one story about that that's very very worrisome i cannot investigate and evaluate these things what i know is that when i started hearing these i wrote a rant about this is not appropriate i don't agree with this sexual depredation by adults on children or by powerful people of unpowerful people is not appropriate not okay not biblical not in agreement and i wrote that and i published it called it a rant trying to be self-effacing and the powerful man in the move that knew about this wasn't very happy with me But notice the silence that comes. Why did he not make a rant? Why is there no policy to this day? So that was 06, 07 time frame. And this is 2020 when I'm recording this. There is no policy statement. So one evaluation is that this is a difference in generational cohorts. That people who founded the move, if they're alive today, they're in their 80s. And people in their 80s, feel like if we have sexual problems like this we cover it up but i'm thinking and that is not what the baby boomer my generation thinks but i cannot understand how they could not to this day figure that out and there are some leaders still left who are baby boomer generation you know they're second tier in power which is a problem too, I suppose. But anyway, the silence here in itself seems to me to be a serious problem. So we've got, this has not been sorted out. That's what we could say. And I don't know about the, you know, about the evidence, but it's extraordinarily worrisome. Either way, there must be a policy statement and a teaching for those in power how to do that correctly. Otherwise, we are far off from what Jesus would do. And, and since I've embarked on that, my policy would be, and, and, and I'm not alone in this, is if there is ever any kind of sexual depredation, first that needs to be addressed in the family, the mother, I'm assuming it's usually the father and, and a daughter. The mother needs to speak up to her husband, no matter what. And if that doesn't work, then that needs to be brought up to the ministry. And if there is not serious intervention with safety insured, 
they're not serious intervention with everybody getting and if the ministry is involved then everybody needs to be on their knees a public repentance with serious guidelines so that everybody stays safe and if that's not happening then there needs to be a report to the secular authorities and if you are worried about your children or your grandchildren and you sacrifice them for your concern about the reputation of the move, shame on you. You need to sort that out. Because if that's going on, and the ministry is not correcting it, then that's what God gave the sword to the secular authorities for. Okay. I'm well known for saying that God wants well-being for all children. So that's my, um, and, and if you're in authority such that you're in authority of the other leaders, then it is your duty to teach this. And if you have people in power who are not taking care of children, then, and people are not safe, then there is in no manner appropriate for them to be in power. And particularly not in a situation where people live together. You should know this. I, I don't know how to say this strongly enough. Okay. So problems with children being saved. Then there was ongoingly some disorganization and so some diversity, yes, and it was intended to be very organized. But if you have a policy that anybody can preach anything and there will never be a correction from the pulpit, then you are going to have confused people. And so there was correction behind the scenes, but never in public. So it was difficult to get a bead on the agreed-upon doctrine. I don't know if there's ever been a church like that, but one of my informants said that, that here is an idea, that... It was on purpose that the doctrine kept changing, the rules kept changing, so that nobody could stay flat-footed. Everybody had to continue to be very psychologically dependent upon the eldership and the ministry. Because if you knew what the rules were, you could comply. But if the rules changed all the time, then you were dependent in an abusive fashion. Now, that's a very strong critique. And this this was made about a particular location don't know the extent to which i doubt that this was intended but as things have continued to ossify in a very worrisome manner i i i'm just going to leave that evaluation open i will say that we have well i want to talk about the numbers we have ashes in the states we have ashes. We do not see the flow of the Spirit. All of the shining, wonderful lights that, that drew us there, like people hearing from God and hearing to, from God together and new revelation, this is not happening. And people are not coming in, no surprise. I want to talk about disconfirmatory visions. Disconfirmatory visions. So if you have a, a an order where... The most important prophetic words are written down and passed in and read, then you have the possibility 
of some being pocketed. Further, you may have the possibility of people who give disconfirmatory words being uh, given negative rewards. And this, this was happening at least in one group that I know of. <laughs> and so um, I know of, of very strong, well-respected, long-term prophets in the move. Um, and I know of uh, prophets talking together. Now, back in the old days, I don't believe they did. But in uh, more recent days, they, they did. And they know that they were being given by the Lord discomfirmatory visions and words. And many of them were not turning them in because they, you know, had their economy and their family and their living arrangement at risk. This is very worrisome. Further, today, so while while we have in the United States ashes, you know, most of the, the farms that I know about in the, the New World, meaning North and South America, they're gone. And yet I'm hearing that I heard one person told me that in Fort St. John, there are more people connected with the move than ever before. Like, that's just plain wild. Because there were many farms, each of which had like 200. And there was an ongoing uh, local city body. And today, there is no city body in Fort St. John. And there are mm, two farms that I can think of. And the one used to have 200 people or so at dinner and when I was there there was 60. I, how is that possible that you're telling me ball-facedly that there are more people in that area of connected with the move than ever before and I was there in 1977 or so. Come on please. And I'm told that well maybe Sam really never preached the wilderness move. Excuse me, I heard him. So it's just wild, wild stories. There seems to be uh, some disagreement in the move about whether there's never die. I mean, on the same, the same end time farm, the same generational cohort or thereabouts, and it's best not to have a disagreement. You know, if one people, you know, one person is higher ranked than you and your your livelihood, your economics, your friends, your family, everything about your life is at risk if you disagree. So this is not going to be coming up. Um, there have been some large splits. I was involved when Ross Bracewell left over the issue of the literal interpretation of the Bible. The Bible says this same Jesus will come in like manner. And uh, that's not what the move believed. Certainly not at that time. It was we, that many-membered man-child, that was going to be the second return of Christ. And in that very meeting, was at the Headwaters Tabernacle, then Ray and Kenna asked the question, and Buddy was behind the pulpit. Ray and Kenna asked, did he believe in the literal resurrection? And Buddy Cobb said no. But 
Upstairs, where the elders met, the elders told Buddy Cobb that he could not say that. And so that is not the official doctrine of the move, but Buddy never repented. Anyway, um, so you've got, you know, I understood that the move revelation would always be in the trajectory of the Bible, but Sam 5 clearly did say we would go beyond the Bible. So exactly how that works out, that's that's a, a worry. Um, and there has been, okay, and the other big split that I know about was over the grace doctrine. So in the early 2000s, at least a third of the second tier of the leadership left because for three years, they, as I have been told, was not there that uh, so grace was being preached much more widely in the church and the move you understand had preached perfection based on the rubbings of body life and submission to the eldership that's clearly or or even if it was faith to to not die it's clearly works and so i was told for three years these leaders tried to get grace to be an agenda item at the Bowens Mill elders meeting and Buddy Cobb refused. And so at that time, quite a few of them left, um, including Tom Rowe, who I would have counted as one of the top five apostles back in the 70s, and a group called The Team, which moved to a community um, in Georgia. But big change there. And since then, much more recently, we have seen the top leadership preach on grace from notes because they are elderly octogenarians, but they have preached on grace. And in fact, I was present at a Lubbock convention, I believe it was 09, when Joe McCord mentioned from the pulpit as he was presiding at the Lubbock Convention that we needed to reconnect with Jesus. Reconnect, uh, reestablish our relationship with Jesus. I found this amazing, an answer to prayer because I had prayed and fasted by that time a couple of years for this because clearly, um, in fact, I remember when a couple of Local leaders, who are well-known, may have traveled, uh, left the move at one time, and they were criticized as having a Jesus spirit. And that was back in, what, 76 or so. Um, after, just after, Ross Braceville had left. Well, anyway, um, and then following this comment from Brother Joe that we needed to reconnect with Jesus, Bill Greer got up and led us in prayer. So, so you see, this is not all of a piece. Um, and then lastly, another worry has been many people have been upset by the land disposition for end-time farms as they have dissolved and been sold. And this is not a surprise to me that there are some hard feelings because the question arises, who owned that land? Since the move has never been a legal entity, then uh, 
So there could not have been any papers that said that the move owned the property. So the people who put up the money to buy the property maybe thought they owned the property. And the people who lived there and contributed their labor for free for a lifetime might think that they own the property. And so if the eldership sells the property and pockets the money, then no surprise, you have some very hurt feelings. I don't know the particulars on any of the case, but I do know that sometimes the sales have been secretive. Sometimes when they shouldn't have been. It makes no sense. Anyway, um, I have certainly seen poor management, both from pastoral standpoint as well as from business affairs standpoint. And one can only shake one's head, but sometimes even when there was adequate expertise, the committee structure meant that there were bad decisions. We'd like to see it the other way around, and I'm sure there are were a lot of cases where a wiser head put in a word that, that was wiser than the average, but um, overall we saw a lot of bad management. Uh, but of course the farms were not originally intended to earn profit or to support the people who lived there. And there was never any pastoral education before people were ordained. And I still don't know of any, although the method for ordaining is considerably different. But the method itself now ensures smooth agreement with what has gone on. So so I'm not sure that that's an improvement over the kind of wild, oh, this person seems to have uh, leadership talent. Let's just ordain them. Okay, so I understand that there continues to be a move and and even growth in some places across the world. So I think it's largely died out in the United States, and I it appears that it has died out in some other developed countries. But we have... I can tell several conventions in Spain, several in some South American countries, and I understand that there was growth in both Far Asia and South Africa. That was in the 06, 09 time frame. So there may be growth. I hope it's healthy growth, but I cannot imagine how that could be. Now, I'm very sorry to say this. I I'm really working hard not to call anybody out. I think there was great step forward. There was, you know, where can you get somebody to challenge people to say, do you want to go all the way with God? Come on. And so that is the answer to which we made. That was our recruiting. And and so it's no surprise that some of the best people I know have been in the move. It's also true that some very sick people are in or have been in the move. But by and large, just great people. And and it's an extended family for those in and out. And in or out, who knows? <laughs> and so 
it was wonderful. We attempted to grow fully. We attempted to work together. We attempted to be like Jesus. And I cannot imagine a more wonderful or a higher aspiration. And there are some worrisome things. And I don't mean to call people out. I mean to stay away from vilification. But if I am tasked with re-preaching this straight, I think it's necessary that there be some historical discussion so these errors are not replicated. Just saying. Okay? So, Lord bless you. I encourage a study of the Word, a close study of the literal Word of God in the original languages, as well as in English. I encourage hearing from the Lord through the Spirit. I encourage the gifts of the Spirit. I embrace miracles. And yes, I want you to try to learn to hear together. And I'm thankful. I am thankful for my experience in this particular move of God. And I'm trying to do the best job I can do. And I'm sure it's not perfect, but Please also do the same. <laughs> and let's and let us go on. Let us go on. Let us go on because we think that God does permit that. God is calling us on. Amen. Blessings to you. Love and grace to you. Amen. Please give us a like wherever you are listening to us so that others might find us. And please share directly with those who might be interested. You are invited to write us at sister at jesuspatternson.org. Sister at jesuspatternson.org. And of course, you are welcome to come to our website at jesuspatternson.org. May the Lord bless you.